this is your first time joining us, though, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here of Chi Alpha, and I would love the opportunity to connect with you after service. Have you ever walked into a situation and realized that you're unequipped for the task? Like, whatever you're going to do just was probably too hard. Maybe you played a sport, and when you saw the other team, you knew that you were not equipped to beat them. This is how I feel every time I get on a basketball court. I'm like, yep, I'm going to lose. Again, this is fun. Lost eight games in a row last night. It was a terrible experience. Anyways, yeah, it sucked. But Noah beat me, so it's fine. Maybe you get a test, and you look it up and down. You, like, turn around. You're like, is there an answer key somewhere? Or, like, what am I going to do? You're like, I didn't study any of this stuff. And then you're like, well, sure didn't study for that. We're probably going to fail. Or maybe you're getting ready to go on a date and you pull up to meet this person. They come out and they're just looking so beautiful or handsome. They got like the best dress or suit on. And you're like, wow, I am certainly not attractive enough to be dating this person. This is not going to go well. That's how I felt when I met my wife, Taylor. I'm like, crap, this is, and then I married her. So it worked out well for me. But anyways, I think sometimes we feel a little under-equipped. Taylor and I, that's my wife, we love to travel. And every time we go to a new place, we kind of feel this feeling of being unequipped. We're like, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know how to get around here. I can't find things. Sometimes we can't speak the language. It can leave us just feeling under-equipped. This is especially true this past summer. This past summer, we thought we were going to go on a beach vacation to celebrate our five-year anniversary. We were just going to chill. We are going to relax in sunny Costa Rica. Then we're on the plane, and someone says, wow, it's so cool that you decided not to just do like a relaxing, chill beach vacation for your five-year anniversary. We decided to come to Costa Rica. It's something that's really exciting. I'm like, what do you mean exciting? Like, I was going to lay on the beach. That doesn't seem that exciting to me. Oh, we were wrong. <laughs> we got in the taxi from the airport, and it takes us on this three-hour drive to this rundown gas station where we have to change cars because that car we had driven was not good enough to take us up this mountain, which is where our hotel was. So when we go up, and we're literally straight up up a mountain. I'm like, I'm going to die, and I have to be a man, though. I have to be strong for my wife, but I was very scared going up the mountain. We get to our mountain hotel. It was beautiful. It's a tree house and a rainforest. So that was pretty cool. But then we talked to the concierge about what our activities are going to look like for that week. And in that moment, I learned I was not in for a beach vacation. We were told that to get anywhere, we would have to go on a hike up a mountain. Taylor and I do not hike. We are not outdoorsy at all. I can't fix anything. I don't know how to do anything outdoors. If I mow my yard, I feel really good. And we are, we're just not active people. Like, we like to lay and watch, like, Parks and Rec. So we're in for a fun trip. This next day, we walk out of our room, and the lady at the front desk looked genuinely concerned for us. She's like, are you sure you're ready? And we're like, what do you mean? And this was because my wonderful wife had only packed two shoes in the shoe department, and those two shoes were sandals and Crocs. She was going to hike up a mountain in sandals. She's like, this is better than the Crocs, though, right? The owner of the hotel was so worried, she offered to give her the shoes she was wearing. She's like, take my shoes. It's fine. I don't need them. Just, you're going to die. And then Taylor tried them on, and, well, they didn't fit. So we're going up a mountain in sandals. Oh, then this man comes down from the mountain. He's got two dogs that are, like, running around. He's got a walking stick with very limited English, and he's there to guide us up the mountain. If you have that picture of my, that's Henry. Henry guided us up a mountain. You'll see a machete in his little thing. He was like swiping people down. It was, it was not people, the, sorry, the trees. No, no, there was no murder on our vacation. That would be bad. But anyways, he hikes us up this mountain. It takes a long couple hours. We go to areas that didn't even have roads. And he was like, when I was like 15, we built this road together. I'm like, you built a road? I didn't know that was a thing. He's like, there's no modern technology, but we made it. You go to the next picture, 
This is us at the top of the mountain. Uh, not awe, we're pretty sweaty. Like, we don't look that good right there, but thank you for the awe. And that's us on the top of a mountain in Costa Rica. Even though we made it, when I looked up that mountain, I realized I'm not quite equipped for my vacation. We should have probably brought, like, shoes. Maybe trained or something like that. See, many of us, we feel unequipped to properly follow Jesus. Maybe you've been hearing all this truth from Kyle for this year, and it's been a little bit of a culture shock. It can be challenging to hear. It seems extreme, right? You hear that we're called to have real devotion, real community, and real responsibility. Like, we're supposed to read our Bibles every day? That's kind of a big commitment. I'm supposed to be vulnerable and honest about the junk in my life, share my deepest secrets with these people that I met like a month or two ago. I'm supposed to confess my sins first to God so I can have forgiveness, and then to community to have freedom. It's quite a big task. Vulnerability is hard, right? You get in small group and you share your drunk, and it's challenging. We're then told that we're supposed to find, feed, and fight for other students on campus. Like we're supposed to live a life that's about more than just myself. That I have to worry about other people's needs. I have to find their needs and meet them because love finds a need and meets it. These are challenging truths we are told. It goes past this then. Then we are asked to live a life that Jesus called us to. A life very, very different from most students around us. We are called to live a life free from sexual sin, a life free from partying and drunkenness, a life of commitment to this community, a life of sacrifice, a life of humility and servitude, a life of the fruit of the Spirit, of having love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, a life void of hurry where I don't spend all day on TikTok. This seems daunting, right? We can look at the mountain of following Jesus and think, I am very, very unequipped for this, that I can't do this on my own. Luckily for us, you can't do it on your own. That's why Jesus wants to equip us. Jesus wants to send us help. He sends us help through the helper, otherwise known as the Holy Spirit. Last week, Victor started our series entitled Fresh Wind, which is all about the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, our helper. Victor talked us through who the Holy Spirit is and what role he plays in our life as he convicts, confirms, and conforms us into the image of Jesus. I challenge you to go back and listen to it if you haven't listened to it yet. But he tells us how the Holy Spirit was sent here to help us, that Jesus had spent three years with his disciples, and then he said, I'm going to send you a helper. So at the end of this three years of this time with his disciples, Jesus told his disciples that it's time for me to go, and that it's going to be better that I leave you. Because he said he was going to send something even better than him, someone to help them. That someone is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps followers of Jesus and equips us. So Jesus dies on a cross and he rises from the grave on Easter Sunday. Then he spent some time with his disciples as the resurrected Jesus. And before he's getting ready to leave earth, he leaves them with some parting instructions. We looked at one of these instructions a few weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, where he said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. However, that was not the only parting instruction that he gave. He also told them, to wait. We read this in Acts 1, 4 through 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. Listen to this verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. 
Jesus, I just pray that we can encounter you in a powerful way tonight. God, just illuminate our minds to what you want to tell us in the scripture. We're so thankful for you and thankful for this group. In your name, amen. Amen. So when Jesus comes and tells his disciples this, I'm going to venture to say they were slightly confused. First, Jesus tells them that it's good that he's leaving. I'm going to say they probably didn't believe him. Jesus was like their Messiah. He was God. He was also like their best friend, their teacher, their pastor. They probably were thinking, Jesus, how can it be good that you're leaving us? And then Jesus goes and he dies on a cross, and they were probably in shock. His friends were probably in sorrow, and they felt hopeless. They'd placed all their hope in this man, and he seemingly was defeated. Then three days later, this man rises from the grave, and they experience euphoric joy. Like, yes, we were on the right side. Our king has returned to establish his kingdom on this earth. Then Jesus tells them, actually, I'm leaving again. But this time, I'm leaving you with my mission. I'm leaving you to make disciples of all nations. When Jesus tells them in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, I would say the disciples probably felt a little unequipped, right? Jesus, how are we to make disciples of all nations? I don't even want to make disciples of like one nation or like one person. Jesus, you are God. And you only had 12 disciples. What are you expecting of us? We're to reach everyone? I bet they felt a little bit like Taylor and I before our mountain adventure. They probably felt a little unequipped. However, right before he leaves, he tells them to wait. So why did the disciples need to wait before going and doing this mission? They're probably pretty excited, right? They're probably really nervous, but also excited. Like, all right, Jesus himself has just given me a mission. Let's go. And Jesus says, hold on. Wait. But why? They needed to wait for power from on high, the power from the Holy Spirit to be his witness. He's effectively saying that if you want to accomplish the mission of making disciples of all nations, you are going to need power, power that you do not have yet. So wait, my disciples. You cannot do this on your own. You need more boldness. So all that to say, the disciples had to wait because they were unequipped. They needed to wait because Jesus had big plans for their lives, and they couldn't reach their fullest potential on their own. They needed something else. The disciples needed something more. I want you to imagine that you and your father are going to dig a hole. And then your dad says, hold up, wait for me. I'm going to go grab something and I'll be right back. He says, don't start digging yet. Let me go get you some help. You could start digging right there. And maybe you'd get a little bit of the hole created, but you probably won't do much just on your own with no equipment trying to dig a hole. Because on your own, you're pretty powerless and ineffective. So the dad says, wait. So then what happened when they waited? We read about this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that seems a little weird, right? Like tongues of fire popped over our heads, that'd be kind of weird. The wind starts shaking. The people who work here in Lang from you, you and I would probably not be very happy with us if that started happening. So they wait, and Jesus says, I'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And that's what just happened in Acts chapter 2. This is what we talked about the Saturday night of fall retreat. They got the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Before we go on, I'll give you a little context. Back in our original text of Acts chapter 1 that I shared at the beginning, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father. That promise was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, again, he's a member of the Trinity, which basically means that the Holy Spirit is God. So he's saying, wait, I'm going to give you more of God. That's my promise. Again, please go back and listen to Victor's message if you missed it last week. But something that's crucial to understand is that all Jesus followers, 
So if you call yourself a son or daughter of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. When you ask Jesus to be your Lord and when you repent of your sins, you receive the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, this wasn't quite how it was. In the Old Testament, only certain people had access to the Holy Spirit. Only like priests or prophets had this availability because they would speak for God. So God would use select people. But then Jesus comes and he makes the Holy Spirit available to everyone. We can all have access to this. After he dies and rises from the grave, he sends his spirit to be our helper. Basically, the spirit is like a little Jesus because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the same in the Trinity. So it's like a little Jesus inside of us because he's not physically on earth anymore. That's why Jesus says this is better. Because when Jesus was on earth, he's a human, right? So he can't go everywhere. He's just in like one place. Jesus couldn't be in Cedar Falls and Ames and Iowa City all at once. He had to stay in one place. But the Holy Spirit doesn't have like a physical body. So it can be everywhere and with everyone all at one time. That's why it's better. So the Holy Spirit, again, is just like Jesus, but it's inside of us. We all have access to the Spirit. So I want you to think of yourself. You are like an empty bottle. And imagine that the Holy Spirit, that's Coca-Cola, okay? When you call Jesus Lord and receive forgiveness for your sins, when you experience what is often called salvation, like your moment of becoming a Jesus follower, you are filled up with the Holy Spirit like an empty bottle that's filled with Coca-Cola to the top. So as soon as you say, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are full of the Holy Spirit to the top, just like a bottle. All Jesus followers have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' disciples, they were already followers of him, before Acts chapter 2, okay? However, Acts chapter 2 shows us that something more happens in their lives because they have all these crazy things that we just read about in Acts 2. So something more happens after they start following him, something that we are told to wait for in order to receive power. That event is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens after we already started following Jesus. Something to note is that this is different from water baptism Water baptism is when you give your life to Jesus and you confess it publicly and you get dunked in water. Like We did that at Fall Retreat, and that was pretty cool. Noah Elgatian jumped in with his jeans, and I thought that was really fun. And then they were sticky. But anyways, so water baptism is in water. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is different. Let me go back to the Coke analogy. Let me show you a video that illustrates what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like. We can pull that up real quick. Awesome. There's, let's give our interns a round of applause. Come on. We love our interns here at Chi Alpha. It's not like other groups that like beat up their interns. We love them. We pay them, or they pay themselves kind of. But anyways, and we make them do stuff like that. So what happens? So again, when you start following Jesus, you are like an empty bottle filled with the Holy Spirit to the top. You have the Holy Spirit, which is that Coke. But then what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, it's an event afterwards, which is like a Mentos being dropped into the Coke bottle, and the Holy Spirit overflows outside of the bottle. So the Holy Spirit's building up inside of you so much that it just can't stay, so it overflows outside of it. This overflow, we see this overflow in our lives happening in what is called speaking in tongues. However, before we dive into that, I want you to understand this. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is an event after salvation that is the Holy Spirit overflowing in your life. After salvation, it's just the Holy Spirit overflowing you. You already have the Holy Spirit if you follow Jesus. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is just more Holy Spirit. And this shows itself through speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, it says that after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Weird. What does that mean? Let's give you some context. So this happened during an event called Pentecost. So what Pentecost was is people from all across the world came to Jerusalem, which is the city where the disciples were. These people all came to celebrate like a feast, like they're having a party. So people from all across the world were in this city. So people who spoke many different languages from around the world came to this one place. So as they are there, this event that we just read in Acts chapter 2 happens where they start speaking in other tongues. What that meant was, is imagine if like, someone from France came here and sat down, and I just started speaking French. They'd be like, whoa, this guy's from Iowa. He does not know French. And maybe they know the context that I've never taken French, so I have no idea how I know French. So then they're like, why are these people speaking my native language? So they knew that the disciples were all from that area in Jerusalem, and in that time they knew the disciples wouldn't have learned these other languages. So people from all across the world come to one area, And then they see this Acts 2 event happen, and the disciples start speaking languages that they did not know, that there's no way that's humanly possible for them to have earthly known this language. So again, it'd be like if I just started speaking French. I don't know how to speak French, but the Holy Spirit empowers me to do it. That's what happened in this event. They start speaking a language they don't know. That's speaking in tongues. Spoiler alert, though, speaking in tongues is not always speaking another earthly language. We learn in 1 Corinthians 14 that usually speaking in tongues, what that means is that you're speaking what's called like a heavenly language. So it's not like anyone else would understand it. It's just between you and the Holy Spirit. Because the point of speaking in tongues is not to like show off and say, hey, now I can speak Chinese. This is awesome. That's not the point of it. The point of it is a way to get deeply connected with God. So usually when you speak in tongues, it's just you speaking in some language that kind of sounds like gibberish, to be honest, where no one really understands what's going on, but you, just the Holy Spirit knows what it is. We could talk about tongues for a long time. It's a very confusing topic. I'm sure you're a little confused. I'm confused, so it's fun. But all we really need to know on the basic level is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event where the Holy Spirit overflows in our lives, and the way we know that this happened is through speaking in tongues or a different language. That can be an earthly language, like you start speaking a different language on earth, or a heavenly language, which is just kind of between you and the Holy Spirit that people don't understand. Another way that this is demonstrated, this event, is through things that are called spiritual gifts. These are things like prophecy, healing, words of knowledge, and there's many others of those. They're talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. So what happened? Just gave you a lot of information, right? The disciples waited, they prayed, they pursued more of Jesus, and then he poured his spirit out on them, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, evidenced by them speaking in tongues. That's really cool, right? I wish I could speak a different language. I didn't know. That's fun. However, we have to go back to our original dilemma. The original dilemma was not that the disciples needed to learn new languages. That was not their issue. Their original dilemma was, Jesus said, you need to go and reach the whole world, and you don't have enough power on your own. The original dilemma was the disciples were unequipped for the mission Jesus had sent them. They needed help. And that is where verse 8 of our original text comes into play. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They will receive power to be witnesses, to make disciples. This also happened in this Acts chapter 2 event called Pentecost. It wasn't just them speaking in tongues, something else happened. So on the day before Jesus was killed on the cross, his top disciple, Peter, had denied Jesus to a little girl. A little girl comes up and says, you know him, right? And he says, no, I do not. This happens three times where Peter, the top disciple, Jesus' top guy, denies him. This is why Jesus told Peter to wait for power because he knew, Peter, you're not very bold on your own. You can't even stand up to me against a seven-year-old girl. How are you supposed to go reach the whole world? 
So then after Peter is baptized in the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he gives a sermon. In this sermon, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance a passage from Joel chapter 2. And basically in this passage in Joel chapter 2, it was in the Old Testament, them telling them what was going to happen at Pentecost. It says like, your sons and daughters will prophesy, they'll dream dreams, they'll see visions, the Holy Spirit will be poured out in all flesh. So what Peter is, he's saying, that thing they talked about back in the Old Testament, the old book we read, that just happened right now. He's saying that's a fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. But then he goes on with complete boldness to say this. Remember, this is the same guy that denied Jesus to a little girl. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, this is Peter talking, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Basically, Peter went from denying Jesus to a little girl to standing up to all the religious leaders of the day that had just killed Jesus and said, you killed the Messiah. You are sinful and you need to repent. That's quite a big change from denying Jesus to a little girl, right? Clearly something happened inside of Peter. You don't go from one to the other on your own. Something gave him boldness. I don't think that change was quite a coincidence. To me, the change in Peter and the boldness he had is actually the greatest testament to this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit because Peter wouldn't have changed on his own. That sermon that Peter preached, 3,000 people come to call Jesus Lord. 3,000 people in one sermon, in one talk, come to know Jesus. That's power. Jesus didn't even have 3,000 followers. He had 12. So clearly something happened inside of Peter. The baptism of the Holy Spirit gave Peter boldness and power to be his witness, which led to people coming to know Jesus. That is the entire purpose of this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of it is to give us boldness because we're unequipped. Think back to our analogy with you and your dad digging a hole. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was like Jesus, the dad, going and grabbing a shovel, or like a forklift might be a better analogy, and coming in and saying, okay, now we can dig this hole. Now we're equipped. He came back with some equipment to help us. That equipment is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives us power to do our mission. Here's another really weird analogy, but please just go with me. You know in the movies and TV shows when there's a girl who's got like big glasses and she has kind of a weird haircut and she's really shimmy, that's not a word, tie, shy, and timid, and she's scared. And then like she takes her glasses off and gets a haircut and she's like, all the guys are like, okay, who's this girl? And they're all excited. And she goes from being shy to being like, what's up, man? I know I'm cute now. Come on. And then next turns, gives a hip hop. Something happened to give her boldness. For that girl, is just taking her glasses off. For us to get boldness to be Jesus' witness, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I felt really weird writing that down in my office, but I'm like, I like it. So we're going to go with it. Now, for most people... The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not like Peter's situation. So Peter went from complete shyness and timidity to preaching in front of 3,000 people. That's not what usually happens. I'm not saying if you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you've got to go start preaching to a million people right now. No, what I'm saying is what it does is it starts a process of us getting a little bit more bold, becoming a better witness. This is another crucial idea from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make you better than anyone else. The fact that we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Chi Alpha does not mean that we're better than other people. It isn't like I'm now a super Christian. No, it just makes you a better you. Not better than other people, just a better you. Billy Graham was an evangelist who led a lot of people to Jesus. He's probably the most influential Christian in the last century. He changed the globe. He had boldness and power. 
but he did not believe in nor was he baptized in the Holy Spirit. So does me getting baptized in the Holy Spirit make me better than Billy Graham? No, I'm certainly not better than Billy Graham. It just means I'm more bold than I would have been without it. I hope that makes sense. For Billy Graham, it doesn't mean that he wasn't bold or he wasn't a good Jesus follower because he wasn't baptized in the Holy Spirit. It just means that if he would have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and would have received this, he would have been even a better version of himself. Please don't fall into the comparison game. This isn't about being better than other people, but just a better you. So we see in Acts chapter 2 that the disciples have this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of confusing. They speak in tongues, which is more confusing. A logical question could be, did this keep happening or did it just happen that one time in the Bible? If it was just a one-time experience that we just read about once, we could probably deduce that it was just for that one time and not to keep happening. However, in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's famous sermon he gave, he says this, For the promise, as in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, for those who are far off, for those who are 2,000 years in the future. This is us. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for us and it's for everyone. Not just the disciples, but it's for everyone. And the book of Acts is evidence that this is true. Long story short, all the disciples and the early Jesus followers, they were of the Jewish nationality. That's where they came from. So in Acts chapter 2, the Jewish people, or like God's chosen people of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, everyone who follows Jesus is God's chosen people. But going back to that, that Jewish people, in Acts chapter 2, them and the disciples, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. However, it doesn't stop with them. And then in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Those are like the half-Jews. So this shows us that it's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for those special people. It's not just for the disciples. Also in this passage of Acts chapter 8, it doesn't directly say they spoke in tongues, but it is evident from the context of the rest of the passage that something outward happened, and because the rest of the book of Acts, we can assume he was speaking in tongues. We'll keep going, though. So in Acts 2, the disciples are baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, was baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Acts 9, the Apostle Paul, he meets Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't say that he immediately spoke in tongues. But what it does say is later on in the Bible, he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So clearly, Paul spoke in tongues. We'll keep going. Acts 2, the disciples. Acts 8, the Samaritans or the half-Jews. Acts 9, the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live. Then in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles, or the people who are not Jewish at all, are baptized in the Holy Spirit. So this proves it's not just for the Jewish people or the half-Jews, but it's for the Gentiles, as in everyone else. Backing up what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. In that passage, they speak in tongues directly after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Finally, in Acts chapter 19, which is 20 years after Acts chapter 2, even more Gentiles are baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. The fact that it happened a second time 20 years later shows us that God wanted this to keep happening. It wasn't just for that time in the Bible. It's because of these five instances and other accounts throughout Scripture, it is evident that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is still for today. So did it keep happening? Yes. Now the question you might be asking is this. Why should I care? Great. The Bible shows that I can have this kind of weird experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but why should I want it? It's confusing. It's kind of weird. You probably weren't taught it if you grew, to church, grew up in church. Why can't I just kind of ignore this part of the Bible? Well, I have a few questions to ask you. Acts 1.8 shows us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives us power to be his witnesses. It gives us boldness to find, feed, and fight for people. 
So do you want more boldness? Do you want to be a better witness? Do you want to see your family, classmates, doormates come to know Jesus? Do you want to find, feed, and fight for people? Do you feel equipped to do that on your own? I'm assuming that if you follow Jesus, you want to be his witness because Jesus commands us to. I'm also going to go out on a limb and say that that idea kind of scares you. That you don't feel equipped to go out and make your friends or help your friends follow Jesus. So by pursuing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're pursuing more power and boldness to help you on this mission. Another question is, how are you doing with living like Jesus? How are you doing with overcoming sin in your life? For me, it's pretty hard, to be honest. It's hard to say no to my flesh, my sinful desires. If you're struggling to live like Jesus, if you're struggling to say no to sexual desires or lust, if you're struggling to say no to pride, if you're struggling to not be angry, the key is to pursue more of the Spirit. When we pursue the Spirit, we will start to live lives in a way that's called the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of a tree produces what's like from the tree, right? For example, an apple tree produces apples. Well, a life of the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you look at that list, do you want to live a life like that? I do. If we want to live a life of the Spirit, if we want to live a life like that, we need to pursue more of the Spirit. All right. This is all pretty confusing, right? Threw out a bunch of Bible verses. We talked about immersion, baptism. We talked about speaking in tongues, spiritual gifts, fruit, a bunch of arguments, logical reasonings. And together, at least for me sometimes, it can just kind of jumble my brain. I'll be honest, this idea still confuses me quite a bit. I don't fully understand it. But I think Jesus wants it this way. So Jesus says in the Bible that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, or to follow Jesus well, we must be humble like a child. Jesus wants us to trust him and to pursue him, not to worry about arguments and deep theological thinking all the time. Yes, we need to know what we believe. We have to have firm truth in our hearts. But if we're honest, most of the time we just don't have any clue. So I have a lot of nieces and nephews. This past weekend we were all together for my grandma's 90th birthday party. And my three-year-old nephew was getting ready to walk into the woman's bathroom. And I said, buddy, that's not for you. That's for the woman, women. And he proceeded to argue me and say, no, that is not correct. This is, the, this is my bathroom. This is the one I'm going to go in. He's like, I am correct. In that moment, I wasn't mad at him, right? I wasn't like, how dare you defy me? No, in that moment, I'm like, oh, that's cute. You think you know stuff when you don't have any idea. That's funny. Thank you. You're smarter than me. You can't read. I think this is how Jesus looks at us sometimes. He's like, that's cute. Little Derek trying to explain all of this when you have no idea. Just like a parent doesn't expect their toddler to understand everything, God does not expect us to understand everything. What he does expect, though, is for us to trust him and to want more of him. So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we don't have to get hung up on all those details. I just gave you all the details. We don't have to get hung up on those. We just need to pursue more of God. Like a child who looks up to their dad, who says, Dad, I don't get it. But I just want to be with you more. Dad, I don't get it all. 
I want to be bold, though. I want to be a better witness. I want to see my friends come to know Jesus. We say, Jesus, there is sin in my life that I'm sick and tired of. I don't want these issues anymore. Jesus, I'm sick of being addicted to pornography. Please help me. Jesus, I'm sick of being angry all the time. Jesus, just help me get this sin out of my life. We say, Jesus, I want peace. I want joy. My life is anything but peaceful and like the fruit of the Spirit. We say, Jesus, I meet people who don't even follow you who are way more joyful than me, who are way more full of peace than I am. Help me, Lord. I just need you. I want all you have for me, even if it's confusing. Luke 11 says this, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, listen to this, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the question we have to ask is, do we trust that God is good? We read this passage and it says that evil people like us even know how to give good gifts. I am sinful. I am very messed up. I make a lot of mistakes every single day. Without Jesus, I am downright evil. But even I know how to give my dog Cap good gifts. I don't have a son, so it doesn't work for that. But I've got a dog that I love to pieces. And I know how to give him good treats and he eats them in one bite or hides them underneath his pillow. It's really weird. But anyways, if I, sinful Derek, can give good gifts, how much better can our Father in Heaven, who is perfect, how much better gifts can He give? So we seek more of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to give us an evil or a bad gift. If we ask for a fish, we ask for bread, we ask for food, He's not going to give us a snake and say, I smite you for seeking more of me. No, He's going to love us enough and say, I'm going to give you a good gift. So if we seek the Holy Spirit and all it has to offer according to Scripture, he's not going to give us something evil. In the book of Acts, they sought more of the Holy Spirit. They sought more of Jesus. And the gift that he gave them was the baptism of the Holy Spirit accompanied with speaking in tongues. So clearly, since God gave that gift to them, since God did it for them, it was a good gift, right? Because God doesn't give bad gifts. So if he gave it to them then, then it's clearly a good thing. So why would we not seek these good gifts that God has given in the past. I believe that if God has done it before, he can do it again. I believe that we don't just serve a God of the year zero, but we serve a God of the year 2021. So if God has given this gift before and it has helped people follow Jesus better and be more connected to God, I'm going to seek that gift because it can help me because I am unequipped. I am not good enough to follow Jesus my own. I am not bold. I'm a timid, shy little boy on my own. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be men and women running after King Jesus, being bold witnesses, if we are willing to receive the good gift that God has for us. He is a good God, and he just wants to help. So even though we do not fully understand this topic, we should be like a child and say, God, I want whatever you have for me. How do we pursue this gift? How do we get what the disciples got? It's simple. We pray, and we ask for God to move in our lives. We ask for more of him. We open our minds and our hearts and our tongues for Jesus to move in us. And then we wait 
we wait like the disciples though. That's active waiting. It doesn't mean they took a nap and watched Netflix. No, they were praying. They were begging God for more. They were crying out, God, I need you. I need more of you. If you want this gift and more boldness, simply ask God for it and be open to whatever he wants to do in your life. And if you feel a syllable or something weird in your mind, speak it out. Because that's probably God implanting something in you that he wants you to speak. But God is not going to control your tongue. God's not just going to start making you do things out of your own will. That's not the God we serve. We serve a gentleman God. So he wants to just partner with you. So he needs your cooperation. We will seek this gift together this weekend at All Night Prayer. So if you're interested in this experience, I highly encourage you to come this weekend. It all boils down to us wanting to be equipped as possible. The main idea tonight is that God wants to give you a good gift. God wants to give you a good gift. Maybe you're here tonight and this is all very, very new to you. Maybe you just recently started following Jesus. Or maybe you grew up in a church that never talked about this and you're kind of confused. You're not sure what to think. You're not sure to think if it's good or bad or what. Maybe your church was against it. That's all okay. You don't have to fully understand. You don't have to fully agree with me. You don't have to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit to spend eternity with Jesus. It's just something more to help equip you. It's just a gift. If you want it, God would love to give to you. Or maybe you're here and you've been seeking this gift for a while. And for some reason, it's just not working. I challenge you to be like a child. Don't seek complete understanding, but be humble and say, God, I just want more of you. Try not to overthink it. It is clear that God wants to give you this gift. Just be humble enough to receive it. Or maybe you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you aren't fully living in boldness or power. You aren't living a life that, you want, that looks like Jesus. Seek a fresh filling of the Spirit. Pray in tongues. Use the gift God gave you. Don't just seek this one-time experience. Open up this gift and put it on the shelf. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a trophy to add to your spiritual collection. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a gift that requires that it is exercised and used. Or possibly you don't follow Jesus at all. Before he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit, he wants to give you the gift of grace. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life and he died on a cross to pay for our sins. See, we've all made a lot of mistakes that need to be paid for. Jesus paid for these mistakes on the cross by taking our pain and punishment, and then he rose from the grave, defeating our sins. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn life with God. That's not possible. All we have to do, though, is accept the free gift of grace that we didn't earn. Then we get to spend eternity with Jesus and live a life like the kingdom of God. If you'd all stand with me. We have a high calling. We have a high responsibility, Chi Alpha. We are called to make disciples. We are called to find, feed, and fight for the 9,000 students on our campus who do not know the name of Jesus. We are called to be his witness. We are called to live like Jesus and to pursue holiness and live a life of the fruit of the Spirit. This weekend, we have an opportunity. At all night prayer, we have an opportunity to seek after this gift, seek after the equipment we need to pursue Jesus better. I challenge you, if you come, come expecting God to move in your life. It will not be like any other night before. I challenge you to come ready to pursue the Holy Spirit or just more of God. You don't have to wait until this weekend to pursue this gift. You can pursue it on your own. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in my car by myself in the middle of a parking lot in downtown Minneapolis. So that was fun and a little awkward, but it was cool. So you don't have to wait until this weekend. You can pursue it tonight if you want. 
But this weekend, we're going to pursue it together and kind of help each other. Just like Taylor and I preparing to climb a mountain, on our own, we are not equipped for the life that Jesus wants us to live. However, Jesus is right here. He's got a gift with the best hiking boots that could ever be bought. Wanting to give it to you. This gift is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you're here tonight, and if you're honest, it's hard for you to even think about this Holy Spirit gift, this extra, this more of Jesus, because you haven't really started with Jesus yet. That idea of the gift of grace is more what you think you need. If that's you and you want to start a relationship with Jesus, you want to start this journey, I want to give you an opportunity to do that here tonight. So if everyone will close your eyes, bow your head so no one's looking around. What we like to do at Chi Alpha is if we want to give our lives to Jesus and start following him, we raise our hands, not so people can see us, but so that we can do an outward symbol to God to say, I'm all in. So if that's you tonight and you want to give your life to Jesus and accept the free gift of grace, I challenge you to raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Thank you. Let me pray for you all. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for the new members of your kingdom. Thank you for grace, God. Thank you for giving us a gift that we do not deserve, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me and my sin and my weakness, God, and being so good to make up for it, Jesus. We love you so much. Our second challenge to you tonight is if you're here and you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to challenge you to pray every day for this gift, specifically every day until all night prayer. I'm going to challenge you to come on Friday night. And I'm going to challenge you to come ready to see God shake your life and turn it upside down. Let's pray together and we'll end with some worship. Jesus, we love you so much. God, I just thank you for your power. I thank you that you have good gifts for us because you're a good God. We love you so much. Amen. And if you need prayer for anything tonight, or if you want to seek this gift of the Baptist Holy Spirit right now, we will have people up in the front that would love to pray with you about that or anything. So if you want to pray with them, that'd be great. And we'll end with some worship.